You're listening to The C-Dub Show. Visit us on the Say Something Nice podcast network at ssnpodcast.com. Follow us at The C-Dub Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Acast. And now, on to our show. Baby, when you look at me, are you looking with honesty in your heart? Is there really room for me to grow and be a part of your life? Or do you just want a one-night affair? Hello, 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 everyone, everyone. This is a new episode of the C-Dove Show. We are recording this on the high holy day of Resurrection Sunday. It is April the 21st of the year of our Lord, 2019. And it's also my mama's birthday. So everybody say happy birthday, mama. Happy birthday, Karen, mama. (laughs) Happy birthday, mama, Doug. Happy birthday, mama. Thank you, mama. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yay! It is a new episode of the C-Dub Show. And today, as you can see, we are celebrating and going over the newly released... I mean, it's not even technically newly released, but we'll get into that because I know Brandon got all the details. Um, yeah. Aretha Franklin, <laughs> Amazing Grace documentary. But first, let's get into some introductions of who we have on the line. So, first... On the line, we have my sister all the way. Are you in yeah, in Louisiana? My sister, Courtney. Hello, Courtney. Hello. How are you today? I'm tired, but we've been praising the Lord all day, but I'm tired. Well, praise him. All right. We, we, we have friend of the show, Greg Treble Free Mitchell. Hey, Greg, how are you? Hey, hey, hey. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, my goodness. Let me see, Rev. He, he still can't hear us. Try clicking the connect um, tab again, Rev, because we cannot hear you. All right. So, but I did make it to family dinner, and I saw my sister and them over there eating ribs. And so now we are sitting drinking wine or something. And I mean, it's Sunday, and it's Resurrection Sunday. We're drinking wine, and we're gonna yeah. get we're gonna get into it. We are going to first check in with our favorite blood songs. Now, for those of you who don't know what a blood song is. Clearly, Resurrection Sunday is about the death and resurrection. I'm sorry, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Mm -hmm. for that purpose, when you go to churches on Resurrection Sundays, there are just songs that you know that they're going to sing. And these are songs that they're going to sing because they all about the the, the crucifixion. You know, he he was hung, he bled, he died. And then when he raised again, then that's when everybody fall out. That's when the Baptist faiths happen. And <laughs> since I read an article about Amazing Grace and they actually talked about it, and I noted how hard it was for those white guys to film the <laughs> film the movie around all the Baptist faints and shouts, I felt it appropriate. So, Courtney, let's start with you. What was your, or what is, I know we both have a list, what's your favorite blood song? It's so hard because my daughter been saying he rose for like three, four hours now. Okay, but my favorite blood song has it's, it's an old staple. Um, the blood left loses power. 
and got all, all the things that you need in the, in the song. And then Lady Crystal Tate on her YouTube video just took us on in singing it. So, yes, the blood will never lose its power. All right. I should, you know what? I should have asked you guys this up ahead so that I could play the songs. But I mean, we don't need nobody Baptist fame on the show. Or maybe, maybe I've gotten so good at editing. <laughs> maybe I've gotten so good at editing, I can put it in afterwards. We'll see. Probably not. Um. <laughs> Um, Rev still cannot get in. This is weird. Okay, my favorite blood song. I have a hard time thinking of one as well. I think of all the old ones that you know you think of, kind of like also again in the movie back in the eighties when we used to wear what a black skirt and what a white shirt, <laughs> a black skirt and a white shirt. Um, <laughs> what were you gonna say, Courtney? They wore that today. We had communion and everything. Oh goodness! Except for in, <laughs> in the movie, they had on a black. They had on black bottoms and spangly white tops. It was concerning. I, I don't know if I could say favorite blood song, but maybe nothing but the blood of Jesus. Ooh, isn't that one? It, yes. What yes. can wash away my sins? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So there go the rev. All right. She's back in. Rev, what is I'm your favorite blood song? What? What's your favorite blood song? Okay, now, see, I'm going to twist it up for you. Okay. Because my favorite blood song is Strange Fruit. Oh, okay. So, oh, um, when we talk about the theology of the blood songs, and um, we look at the cross and the lynching tree as being synonymous with our identity as Christians, Black Christians, and church people. We, especially when you look at, uh, when you know the, the, the power and the visual of the, the devastation and the morbidity of Christ's crucifixion, I think uh, Strange Fruit, the song uh, Strange Fruit, really, really, really does capture just just how horrible it is you know um that that we would we would look at it so in my place if i were to and as i have preached uh blood songs i've always blood sermons i've always started with strange fruit can i tell because you how maybe, i just raise I, my hand like i'm really in church like receiving <laughs> yes <laughs> because um uh if 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 we are not interpreting uh, the gospel and what what the blood means for us, we fail to really preach the, the whole gospel. And the whole gospel is one that is birthed out of this type of a, a crucifixion. Then for me, we move into the uh, anesthetized or the sanitized blood songs, as you, as you will. And my favorite one then would be, I think, by... Um, Andre Crouch to God be the glory. And um the, the line that, that gives that gets me is now for the things that uh, he has done with his blood, he saved me. Yes. yes. With his power, he raised me. Yes. And that hinges for me on that that Friday. That's the only way we can make it Friday to Sunday if we we hang out in that between that stanza the friday by his blood he saved me and that's early that early that sunday early morning, sunday morning. His power, he mm. raised me so so that's that's my 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 place with uh with, with blood songs well I almost ran around 
Listen, I miss church today, but I, I look, I got my resurrection sermon. <laughs> you, 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 you just did a coaching run, huh? Right. I just, I just, I, I had to stop myself from running because I'll, I'll, I'll drop the laptop. But listen, I, <laughs> listen, because that's what, that's what is the most important, right? Of the blood song is when people talk about why mm-hmm. is Easter so important and why do we dress up for it? You know, why do we celebrate it the mm-hmm. way that we do? Because the blood. The blood. And I, so I think that my favorite blood song is He Would Not Come Down from the Cross Just to Save yes. himself. himself. Oh, yes. And who was that it by? Is what is the connection to the movie? The yeah, Reverend James. Reverend Cleveland. Dr. James Cleveland. Mm-hmm. James Cleveland. Brandon, do you have a favorite blood song? Is he back yet? Uh oh, did he leave? Well, no, he, he had to. Take a call. Really take a oh, call. he did. Okay. I thought he came back for a second. Um, yeah, we'll wait to hear back from him. I, <laughs> you, you, you were saying, Mary, Mary, don't you weep is a blood song, technically? Well, it, in kind of like when we do. So, me and Courtney have a play that we wrote for Resurrection Sunday called Calvary, and we use Mary, don't you weep because obviously it is about Mary, um, weeping or not weeping at the tomb. Um, I wrote a, a, an extra part that did not happen in the Bible, but I kind of wrote Mary's layman, which is her, her talking about, you know, giving her son up for the rest of the world. But also mm-hmm. what we're going to get to when we talk. Oh, when you talk about them overdubs on Facebook, it just killed me because also it has the story of, of Lazarus. So yes, a, a lot of the thing gonna... component wise, Mary, don't you weep is a resurrection song. It's not really mm-hmm. a necessarily a mm-hmm. blood song. Cause she don't get into the shedding of the blood, but it's a resurrection song, so I can see it. Well, you see that Lazarus is a, a, a depiction of Jesus. He was okay. the, the depiction of what was going to happen to Jesus, how he died and was going to raise. That's that was kind of the. It's too important to Lazarus being raised. It's the, the importance of that to so the power of Jesus, and also to show what was going to happen to Jesus in the future. So mm. that yes, yeah, the depiction of it, yes. Lazarus. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yep, and remember that's, that's, Lazarus yep. in the ground in the place of the rock for three days, just long enough to create the stench and the decay and, and, and the lividity. And it was on the third day when the women went expecting what you would have expected, like Mary and Martha would have expected the condition of Lazarus to be, which would, would have been uh, without an opportunity, without the possibility of coming out whole, that's the same intent that the women went to the tomb looking for the body that couldn't possibly have anything except, you know, lividity and and decay and uh, and decayed beyond recognition. Oh, but they got something else. Oh, it's it's like that meme that I sh- that posted the other day. Who, well, that's not a little boosie. Who was that in the meme? Uh, where it said <laughs> when when they rolled the, the the stone away and they thought Jesus was gonna be there, <laughs> no Jesus. <laughs> well, I'm I you know Resurrection Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays. Only if you can get there on time though, which is kind of why even though I got <laughs> I could have went late, but Pilgrim Rest is one of them churches when they, when you don't have a church, you go to Pilgrim Rest. And so I knew I wasn't gonna have no seat, so I just stayed home. I go to church next Sunday. All right. Brandon's back. Brandon is back. Yes. Yeah. Do you have a do you have do you have a favorite blood song? I don't. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. 
All right, so let's go ahead and get into what we are, the main event, what we are all here for. Um, we're here to talk about the Aretha Franklin documentary, Mary, I'm sorry, I was about to say, Mary, don't you weep. That's because I'm looking at the video. Um, Amazing Grace. And I'm glad that I have Greg and Brandon here with me because they can help me fill in all the holes of what I do not know about this documentary and this film, especially Greg being from... Detroit, even though this was filmed in in L.A. and Greg probably wasn't born yet, so yeah, I wasn't. <laughs> it, it, it precedes my birth by three years. Well, it's so, so interesting mm-hmm. to me, you know. Um, a lot of people we talk about the importance of Amazing Grace and the importance of the culture, but I'm in the One Lord One Faith baptism generation so that was my first aretha live gospel album i remember grandmother having that having the, the vinyl record and playing it i don't know when grandmother played it she wasn't one of them that played it on sunday morning but she played it i know she did mm-hmm. <laughs> so i my entrance to amazing grace even though i'm sure i heard pieces of it my entrance didn't come until i went to el cerrito high school and our dance teacher, Miss Jackie Burgess, used it every year for twenty years for her dance, uh, her dance performance. She did a performance Absolutely. called Sunday Morning. If you're one of the good dancers, then you got to do it. Um, and that was when I learned about Amazing Grace. But some basic bare bones history of the album. Amazing Grace is the fourth live album by Aretha Franklin. It was released on June first, nineteen seventy-two, on Atlantic. It sold at the time two million copies. It became it got certified double platinum. Um, it held the 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 award for the best selling gospel music album of all time. But it looks like now it's just the best selling live gospel music album of all time. I don't know how true or factual that is. And it did earn Aretha the nineteen seventy three Grammy Award for best soul gospel performance. Now, the thing that I find interesting about some of the origins, this, this is just for the history, so I'm going to look for, look, Greg and Brandon, this is when y'all step in. Okay, so the thing that <laughs> that is interesting to me about the history is that Aretha kind of did the album because she wanted to people to think not to think that she had left her gospel roots, which they basically already did. And we know that in 72, you either sung one or the other. You either sung gospel or you sung secular you did not do both of them so for her to decide to do such a huge project so early in her career at basically at the Beyonce height of her career basically was a, a big okay. huge thing did she Greg or Brandon do you know does she have much trouble actually selling Atlantic on doing the album I don't know um I would imagine not because at that point in 72 Aretha had so many hits that she had carte blanche. Yeah, she could, you know, she could, she could do whatever she wanted, and it was like they they pretty much said, okay, well, since you you're doing really well at all of these different things, what do you want to do next? And when she mentioned that, they were probably not really too enthralled with the idea, but they said, okay, well, we'll give it a shot since you've done everything else. So they they allowed her to go ahead and do it. And they, you know, they put their full muscle behind it. Um, From a technical standpoint, I'm highly impressed about how all of it came together, as uh, we'll discuss hopefully later, um, being able to hear both the original pressing and this uh, 1999 reissue where it was the original tapes undubbed 
you know, I was like, wow, to hear, you know, all the work that actually went into it. One little factoid I wanted to throw in that I just kind of, uh, in preparation for tonight's show, I looked at the CD of the original release from 72 wasn't actually put out until 1987. Oh. And I found that interesting because I'm like, well, hey, that's right around the time they did One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism. So they went into the vaults, I guess, for promotional I guess, reasons? Yeah, and put it on CD around that time, yeah. Now, let me ask you guys this. Um, you know, now, especially in the 90s, and not as much now, we have a lot of folks back to doing mostly studio work, but in the 90s, everybody's album was a live album. All of Hezekiah Walker's albums was live. All of Kurt Franklin, all of John, all of their albums were live. Before Amazing Grace had there been an actual release, I mean, no, because gospel, I don't know. So that's what I'm asking you guys. Had there been a live recording of this magnitude prior to this, maybe just in the gospel setting, was this the first just on a secular label or was this the first all around? Hmm. No I can't. Uh, did Brandon, you have any idea? Her first gospel recording ever, you mean? Well, no, I'm, I'm no. talking about in gospel in general. It's, it, now it's, it's mainstay that, you know, everybody's album is recorded as a live recording. Had something of this magnitude been done in gospel at all before this? Well, technically, yeah. Well, I'm, hmm. I'm pretty sure there have been other live album, gospel albums, uh, but not by somebody of Aretha's, like, stature. Like, like closest you can think of, like, as far as, like, would be like the staple singers and all of their stuff was studio recorded back mm-hmm. then right okay like, i, I was gonna say maddie i was gonna say maddie moss clark in the unac albums but those were technically 76 77 okay. i guess so that doesn't really count doesn't count um they were after of course amazing grace i is it's probably fair to say aretha started something with that yeah. You know, she started a trend with that. And um, yeah, I mean. Mm. Here's a very interesting and fact. I, Go ahead. Oh, uh, one of the things that I wanted, just as an observation, you were asking if her label uh, had tension with her um, uh, coming out with this gospel album. Now, you have to understand that at the height, I mean, at that entrance, um and Dolly Parton and the country and Western singers had gospel recordings. And so I'm wondering if it was just a matter of economics that for her to do quote unquote cross back over as opposed to crossover, Mm -hmm. um, they saw it as an opportunity to Mm. do what had been done because um, I think who, uh, let me see, um, gospel music, actually charted and so i'm from texas and so i got these and uh, you know three western singers as well as uh, aretha franklin kind of in my head because i know i'm old knowledge but um and just from an economic standpoint if the label did not with, uh, you know, Elvis Presley and with Dolly Parton and with uh, the other country and Western singers gotcha. who were releasing, even though they didn't do live gospel uh, albums, they were doing gospel releases, in, you know, alongside their uh, R&B and country and Western and rock. That makes perfect sense since all of these were birthed out of, <clears throat> out of that Southern tradition of gospel mm-hmm. music. So that would make perfect sense. Here's an interesting fact that I just found. <laughs> Amazing Grace 
was set to originally be released as part of a double bill with Superfly. Oh, okay. I thought it was Shaft, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, 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 that would make sense. Shaft is MGM, Superfly is Warner Brothers. That's wow. a terrible idea. Yeah, that's what I say. Half. Ah, I thought. I, look, I, ran, I thought you were gonna have some some amazing uh, reasoning as to why this would be okay. Like <laughs> because you know why? You know why they thought that was okay, Carolyn? Because they because black. White. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> we black and we know Jesus. And we know hair wrong. Well, no, no, not not only that, but you got to think back to 1972 and how white folks viewed black folks yeah, and, and how they viewed our art. You know, anything black was all considered to be, you know, oh, yeah, for them. Well, mm-hmm. and, 1972, yeah. though, Greg, is the sort of kind of the start of black exploitation. Like Shaft's kicks, Shaft and uh, Sweet Sweet Bat kick it off in 71, but 70. It's not white stacks. They come out in 73. Gospel? No, it's it, it's white stacks. White stacks. It, well, it, the concert recorded. I'm sorry, you're right. You're right, Brandon. It was yeah. released in 73. It was recorded a month in later in 72. 72. Yes. At, okay. um, at the at White's um, Festival. And the anyway. thing that made me... So, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, the funny thing is, watching the documentary, I thought a lot about white stacks. Cause like, mm-hmm. And I get to technical stuff when you get me to go ahead about why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I have a whole block. <laughs> well, that was the reason why I would maybe even look up when White Stacks was recorded and filmed because when Greg mentioned the, what white people thought of black people and then I thought about stylistically, I mean, of course they're going to look stylistically the same because they're in the same era, but they look a lot alike. All right, yeah, so let's get and into- remember the church. The church uh, was is set in Watts. The uh, church where they recorded it is set in Watts, and I it, it's because in our culture the sacred and the secular doesn't have such a strong definitive line mm-hmm. as it would for the uh, uh, white evangelical, and so some of those same people who was probably in Watts Stacks uh, video was also in it was also Franklin a recording. And swear, then in Watts Stacks, don't they have a church- yeah? Don't they have a church scene in Watts Stacks? <laughs> Emotion sing in a little tiny church in Watts and uh-huh. uh, Watts that because they were on the bill for the actual show. The show ran over time, and so they cut. It, they were one of the acts who got cut, and Al Bell arranged to have them do a gospel number in a church, and they you know edited it into the film. And it looks exactly, it looks exactly the same. You're right about that. Yeah. The lady mm-hmm. sitting next to me, who was a musician, she recognized a member of the, the Southern California uh, choir. I said, "Lord, look how small the world is." <laughs> so let's get into we'll get into the actual history of the film and I want to first get your and I'm asking you this for a reason I want to get your first reaction maybe when you even first saw the trailer and when you found out when you first saw the trailer when you found out Aretha was not going to let it be released and when you found out Aretha not when they found out they were going to release it but when she died <laughs> because for me those are all very definitive things I don't remember how I first saw the trailer I want to say Greg, no, but Greg didn't. I feel like I posted it and then Greg had said he had already seen it. Some kind of way, it showed up in my newsfeed maybe two, three years ago. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is amazing. When is this going to come out? And that's, I think, when Greg was like, well, Aretha keeps fighting it. She's been fighting it for 30 years. And I was like, what is, what in the hee-haw hell? So for those of you who don't know the history of why the film took 36 years or 46 years to actually be released, there was some back and forth between Aretha and the current film company. And you guys, again, Greg and, and um, Brandon, feel free to jump in. There was, after the film itself was shelved, 
And you guys can tell me why when you get a chance why it was show the first time. I think I know, but I'll let you guys get into that. Um, then, then the director dies. Sydney Paul, Sydney died. Sydney Pollack, Pollack died. Yeah. Right. So Sydney Pollack died, and then it sat on the shelf some more until. Well, f- go ahead. Let me jump in. So when they first shot the film, and I think we talked about this when, in um, episode uh, when Maria passed. When they first shot the film, for whatever reason, Sydney Pollack didn't have the camera crew use um, slates. You know, you see them make a movie, mm. and like scene five, take one action. <laughs> Because you can't clapboard yes. Jesus. I told you that before. <laughs> but you have to clapboard Jesus <laughs> you're making a motion picture because your film and your audio recordings are always separated. Mm-hmm. And back in the day before we had, you know, digital time code and things and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and everything that syncs it automatically. Now, only way you could sync things was by having the call out on the um on the reel, having the clapboard to know where to make the sync at. And so when you go to the editing room, you've got 900 reels of film and 900 pieces of audio tape you know what goes with what so mm-hmm. they could they back in the 70s they if they didn't have the clapperboard they could it was hard for them to put it together so that's why it wasn't released during sydney pollock's lifetime because they could never figure out how to put this thing together it was just mm-hmm. pieces of stuff yeah about. and yep. so after he died so what happened then they finally got somebody picked it up and then they finally had the technology to isn't that what happened they finally had the technology to put it all together kind of yeah. kind of sort of uh alan elliott yes his name alan elliott who's the producer uh, the main producer among other ones who have come on board he actually um took the mantle from uh sydney pollock to go ahead and put it out he mortgaged his house to buy this project and he just got all the reels and he hired lip readers and people to help him do the sync to help to sync it all together using now technology and i think he did that somewhere around possibly 10 years ago um because the first cut of the film was actually supposed to hit uh brandon can probably make sure i got this right but I think the first cut of the film was supposed to hit the theater circuit back in 2008, 2009. Yeah. And that's, and that's when Aretha filed the lawsuit to stop it. I think her first lawsuit was in 2011 when she filed it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was 2011 for the Tell You Ride Film Festival. Right. I believe. Yes. Yes. They were going to air it. And right before it was supposed to air, she filed the last minute injunction, injunction. to get it stopped. Now, there are several rumors as to why. There was one article that I linked you to that said, and this was so preposterous to read, it was quoted on this, um, they were going to film a scene that had the original choir and Aretha come back as in 30, 40 years later type of thing for the end of the documentary. Mm -hmm. And they were going to pay Aretha a million dollars to do it. Mm. Aretha said, Julia Roberts gets 10 million. Julia Roberts gets 10 million. Why can't I get five? And of course, they're like, you know, it's they, a documentary. Uh, we don't, we don't got five. Right. <laughs> it, right we don't five. got five. So we don't have it to give to you. And basically that was one of the stoppages. I, you know, I had a conversation with a, a, a friend of mine about the film and I, I heard, I, we, we shared a thought. It was a thought that was shared with me that is very sort of interesting and bad all at the same time. <laughs> oh, look. That 
um, <sighs> the legacy of James Cleveland and what happened at the end of his life was enough to want have maybe warrant Aretha to separate herself from the film of it. Oh. And I didn't think about that until this friend mentioned it. And I was like, you know what? Wow. That's 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 a that's that's a deep deep. thought. It's a deep thought because now the album could the album is a whole nother animal from the film. And the album can be whatever it is, it can go on and you know be reissued and this and that. But if the film is tainted with everything that you know his legacy was included with, you know, and mind you, one of the craziest thoughts I had when I'm watching the film. And I thought about you, Carolyn. I oh, promise Lord. you, I did. Okay. I, I, I saw all kind of family in there. Yeah. Did you get my drill. The lady who was sitting next to me, I mean, well, the whole, the majority of the theater that I was with, because I was at an event, was yeah. family. Yeah. So, and, and I didn't like, ask her when she said, when she said, I recognize her. I'm not going to ask her. Oh, girl, I'm not going to, but that, yes. And the question to me is, would, Knowing and having read Aretha's, I don't know if it was an autobiography or a biography, one of the two, and knowing how close that whole circle was, her, James Cleveland, knowing the history of the gospel um, caravans that all came, they all came out together, um, knowing about, you know, whatever did, Brandon always fusses at me about defamation. I'm just going to say Richard Smallwood, knowing all of these things, was she trying to, would she have been trying to separate her? She'd possibly be trying to protect him. I don't know. That's that's a, that's a that's a very interesting thought because I'm I was thinking about that you know earlier today, and thinking about how black folks when there's something we uncomfortable with, mm-hmm. we don't discuss it. We just separate from it. Yep. We don't we don't try to figure it out. We don't try to talk through it and fig you know uh, even something as as simple as sexual relations, whether they're hetero or gay, we don't we, deal with it. So we just we just kind of separate ourselves from it. And as I was reminded of the end of James Cleveland's life and all the stuff that happened, y'all need to Google that. I won't get into it now. Yeah, that's what I was going to for the you know, when when James Cleveland died, I was what, maybe was I 10, maybe. And I vaguely remember things. I don't know how much of it was true or what was not. So we're not going to go into it here. But yeah. folks should look into finding as much of it. Go to your your, your local elder church member; they might know. But either that, or it's, it's on Wikipedia too. So oh, is it? Baby, I'll be reading that. Oh well, here's another question yeah. I had, and maybe Brandon could answer this question. I read somewhere also that one of the concerns was that without having the so there was a talk about them adding extra quote unquote documentary style footage as not just her singing with the choir. But having the interviews, even maybe not with her, I don't know, to make it more documentary style because there was a concern that because the film itself, and we're going to get into this too, because the film itself is basically just the whole concert recreated, that it's not considered fair use and that that was one of the issues. Brandon, does that sound like something that would make sense? Not considered. I mean, as far as I understand, like the that footage is like connected to the album. It's like all, it was all property licensed. It was produced by Warner Brothers who owned Atlantic at the time. I'm not sure why they would, because fair use comes in when you have a documentary and you want to use like, say like, I make a documentary about 
I don't know, raising my kids, I want to include like a little short clip of an episode of Full House or something. That's what that's we know. You would use in. Family Matters, Brandon. I, I'm oh, stop! Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I'm but just yeah, messing I probably would use Family Matters. <laughs> so um, that's where fair use comes in. For this, as long as all paperwork is all together, they should have been fine to to like use the concert footage as it was. I think it would be more so the idea that people who see documentaries, or more importantly. Uh, distributors who buy documentaries would be more inclined to have Amazing Grace if it had documentary segments inserted into it. It wasn't just a concert film. Okay. That's probably um, what they were thinking of. Just oh, how do I sell it? Because it mm. is definitely from beginning to end, it's it's just the show. And so that's yeah, what but, I was but, telling but somebody. Yeah, I thought I was telling somebody the star of the show is Jane Cleveland because Aretha don't talk. Except for the very end, she do like a Russell Simmons. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Jane, and, and, you know, in, in grand church tradition, James Cleveland is the, you know, he's the day of producer. He's the choir director and he the MC. So he do all the talking. Yeah. Th- well, uh, of yeah. course, it, it was rehearsal because she was dressed differently yeah. than she was on the two nights. Yeah. There was some of the rehearsal footage intercut with everything. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, I'm hoping that the DVD Blu-ray is way more thorough and has all of that Just give rehearsal us all footage. Hours. Just that'd be nice because I, <laughs> one of my um, I'm not sure this... who works and produces some videos. And videos. Twenty hours can't fit on a Blu-ray. <laughs> we, I'm sorry, Brandon. Unless they do a double a double Blu-ray set, which I'd like to see, you know. I, they they can do a double set if they feel like the if they justify the cost. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. I know it's I, a crazy. I, I think they could probably put maybe a deleted song or two or something like that. But like deep Blu-rays have been weird ever since um our friend Netflix came into the scene, mm. and they don't like to include too much extra stuff on them nowadays. Why? Hmm. What they got to do with Netflix? Because people don't buy Blu-rays and DVDs as much, oh, and therefore okay. they want to keep down the cost of producing them. And the more stuff you have on it, the more expensive it is to make and to duplicate, because that's more file space you have to write each time you write a Blu-ray or a DVD. That's Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. I'm yeah. just hope. I mean, the, the music fan side of me is hoping they'll go ahead and do a thorough release with, you know, all the footage that was left out, because the cutting of Mary was was really upsetting. Wait, let's get that thing. We need to get to that when we get to the actual concert. Let me so just let me just tell the listeners who so we know that Aretha fought an injunction, no movie. Those of us who love Aretha and love Jane Cleveland, very sad. And then suddenly in August, oh, sad again. Aretha has died. And I feel terrible because two days later, I think I messaged Greg or maybe Brandon or somebody and I said, Do y'all think that this means we gonna finally see Amazing Grace now? Terrible. I'm a horrible Christian. No, no, you're not. No, you're not. Because yo, I said this. I said the same exact thing. I was like, "Oh, good, we gonna get the movie now. We gonna get the movie now." That's that's what I said. Because yo, I mean, her family can't think of a reason why she wouldn't really want it. It was her own personal petty, you know. And I I figured that once now that she has passed on, the family's gonna look at it. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I read one of the articles that said. Sabrina Owens, who uh, was another producer, uh, is I think Aretha's niece. 
you know, upon, you know, discussions, Alan went to her. They had a discussion. They showed the family the movie. The movie, the family was like, okay. That was can't less of, than a month. <laughs> we can't, yeah, we can't think of why she wouldn't want it out. So let's do it. And they, they got with Neon and made a deal. I will say that after I finished watching it, I was, the one thing I was sad about it, I was like, this is something that people should have seen and been able to appreciate while she was living. I yes, was I, I was actually mad at Aretha because I'm, I mean I'm sure she don't need no more accolades. She's had every accolade in the world, but at the same time, for so many people who have not ever, I mean I've seen clips of Aretha on YouTube, but watching her in her full element, watching James Cleveland in his full element, that was something that we should have been able to behold while she was alive. So the family okayed the release of the film. Like I said, it took about maybe a month. Um, and it finally premiered. I cannot find where, but I know it was in November of 2018 is when it was first released into the world. Um, I think it was at, it was at New York um, Film Festival, if okay. I recall properly. I know it was in New York. I didn't know which one it was. Um, in L- L.A. as well, I believe. And one thing that we didn't give the folks so you can have context to understand, this was filmed over two nights in Los Angeles at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church. Pause for the call. They don't even we we can't even get to have a a regular concert at a missionary Baptist church no more. They filmed this at New Temple Missionary Baptist Church, January fourteenth um, and fifteenth, nineteen seventy two. Nineteen seventy two. And it debuted at um, Doc NYC, which is a documentary film festival in New York City. Awesome. And so let's see the producer. He had the, the her co-producer Jerry Wexler, who we already know, who also arranged for Warner Brothers to film the the movie. Um, Sidney Pollock, who was who would go on to become famous for what movie is Sidney Pollock famous for, Brandon? Jesus Christ! I thought you know. I always think I always think Sidney Kubrick. I always get them mixed up. Stanley Stanley Kubrick is and, what and I. And I always think of Sidney Lumet, who did The Wiz. I don't know why. <laughs> Lord, give me a second. I'm going. Um, three days of the Condor, absence of malice. Jeremiah Eyes Johnson, Wide Shut. The way we were. Eyes Wide Shut works. <laughs> hey, I gotta say, I don't know, I know, but I know Eyes Wide Shut. I don't know the rest of them. Yeah, um, Tootsie and they shoot horses, don't they? Um, that's why they were like, he was the Sidney Pollack. And I was like, well, I don't know. He wasn't he he wasn't John uh Hughes, so I don't know him. So whatever. by the way, I think it's I think it's Sidney Pollack. I don't wanna Oh yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna nitpick, but just to get his name right but i think it's sydney pollock and um yeah he was apparently a very important film director and for him to filmed this at that time was a pretty big huge deal it's almost like you know uh steven spielberg doing the color purple right it's, it's kind of the same type of status wise so the fact that he did it at that time you know meant kind of a lot um, for this film, had it have come out in its proper time, it would have been a huge deal. Um, but uh, you know, of course, we know why it didn't. Why so it didn't. I, there's that. Um, yeah. So let's get into. It's divided into two days. So we'll talk about it in its two days in turn. I, I one thing that I have fern, found, Fern found why I appreciate <laughs> Brandon and the guy to say something nice. Listen, it's hard to review a movie that you only seen once and you ain't going to pay no money to go back and see no time soon. So, (laughs) I'm going to do my best. 
and I'm going to depend on the team. We're going to all give our takes about, you know, I'm going to, I'm actually running through a, an article that details the night. So I'm just going to run through that and get everyone's um, opinions on each night based on that. I want to first start with how we know that this is a black movie because they start the movie with the choir with a haloed afros marching in. Choirs don't march in no more. Listen. Right? <laughs> marching in is in white people who listening, marching in is important. Okay? In That's my important. day in the 90s, we didn't just march in either. We had claps. We had there was a we had dance. Right. It's a procession. The processional took 15 minutes. And Girl. they <laughs> And they okay. and they, 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 yeah. they didn't just march in and then get to sing when they got in the pool in the uh, choir stand. No, they marched in singing and swinging. That's what I said. Oh, we about to be real black. Okay, let's be Listen, real black. Listen, I I have flashbacks <laughs> of New Bethel. Yes. <laughs> when I'm say, I'm watching this like, oh my god, like <laughs> this is the. This is the blackest stuff I've seen. That I've like, seen. Oh my God, this is New Bethel all day. Because I went to New Bethel, I think I mentioned like uh, between um, 85 and 92, roughly. Mm -hmm. And I that was the church I kind of grew up in from like seven, eight, you know, nine on up to about uh, 15 or so. And just seeing everything that was my premier experience of black church was new bethel baptist church and just everything that i know about churches from that experience and seeing that processional in the film i was like oh i was blown back because to me that's when i knew we were ultimately we got a very good visual of black church the way that black church was in the 70s and 80s and there has never aside from that documentary the gospel there has never been a documentary that fully gave you a full visual a full feeling of what gospel music you like i came out of there like bump these new churches i'm sick of them i need to, <laughs> I need to get me back i'm sick i'm sick of my sister will tell you i'm sick i'm so sick of praise and worship teams i need a choir mm-hmm um, mm. before well, I go, praise and worship has its place. It does. It does. However, it ha however they killing the choir and it's killing me. Um, yeah. uh, Greg, the listing for the the way that the the songs are in the film is that the same track listing from the the disc from the disc or no? What what? Just so I have your question clear, what is it again? You say the songs that, that they that, that were in the first night. Does the track listing on the album follow the basically the track listing of the two nights? I'm gonna say no. It it does somewhat. The film, okay, the film is more in line with the second pressing in 1999 of night one and night two. They kind of you know did it in that order, I suppose, from what I could tell, what I could match up. But the final release, you know, that was done in 1972, those were, those songs were all mixed around in a whole different order that the label thought would be better, that Aretha and the label together thought would be better. That was one of the biggest shocks to me when I initially uh, got a hold of the the reissue in 1999 um out but to get a hold of that and to see that 
oh, Mary isn't first. Mary wasn't right. recorded first. I was like, oh, it was like on the second night. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even on the first night. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. We're going to give so, Mary as a whole own segment. So save all Mary thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so, so they come into the into the sanctuary. Um, prior to this, Reverend Cleveland does give us an introduction. That's where we get what we what I consider the iconic Miss Aretha Franklin. That's from the from the introduction. Um, it's very worth noting. A lot of times we talk about now the live recordings are in in auditoriums or in arenas. This, of course, was in a regular Baptist church. So one thing every review that I've read about the movie talks about all the wires and the gear and the equipment and how crammed it was in this little bitty church. So that was worth noting. There's going to be a scene towards the end of the movie that I loved where they start shouting and they had to move. Like she was shouting and while she's shouting, she moving the white dude out the way. That becomes mm-hmm. like a theme for the whole movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, Aretha comes in. Mm-hmm. I think she opened with, what was that that she was playing on the piano that she opened with? She only went to the piano like holy, two or three times. Okay. She they open with holy holy. Yeah, from what's going on. Yeah. From Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. And by the, the way, mashup of Holy Holy. Yeah. And I gotta mention to me, uh, I found this very interesting. Her arrangement of Holy Holy was so much so way different than Marvin's than original. Marvin. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, because I didn't even recognize the song. Mm-hmm. I I recently got the what's going on uh double cd reissue from about 2001 and i was listening to it again and i was just doing a comparison i'm like it doesn't even sound like the same song but that's how i feel about a lot of aretha covers that's how i feel about her cover of young gifted and black like she she was able to gospel those uh, you you cut out for a second which cover of hers you mean Um, um young gifted and black oh yeah that one her cover of uh, Bobby Womack's "That's the Way I Feel About You," yeah. that was different as well. Um, she, whenever she covers something, she manages to do it her way, and she yeah, really like her, her, her most famous cover. Um, you made me feel like a natural woman. Oh, that oh, wait a was minute, that a cover? yeah, yeah, it was because Carol Carol King wrote it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, well, I don't know about that. That. That that's not too much different than the original, is it? I mean, is even her cover though of like something like "You All I Need to Get By" is different. Like, oh yeah, I love that cover. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, agreed. But I think agreed. all a lot of those covers had to do with what Aretha did in this in this album, which was hold on to the gospel roots that that people thought that she didn't have. Because even when you listen to like her cover of "You're All I Need to Get By," there are very few secular players who can gospel up a song like Valerie uh, Simpson. And the only person who was able to do it was, if that was, I don't know if that was Aretha playing it or was that her sister playing it? Really quickly, I I tanked. So Natural Woman, she did record it first. Okay, that's what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, I know Carol King wrote it. She did write it, yeah. Yeah. She She wrote it and gave it to her. Uh, Carol King recorded a second. Then is that it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Because I, I, I met. That's okay. Because I wasn't one hundred percent aware of it either. So, um, but yeah, interesting the way she's done it. She's put her stamp on it in her own way. It hasn't always yielded great results, but she's done some real good ones. She, you know, 
Um, the Stevie definitely was a cover un, until you come back to me. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a cover, and Her's I didn't know. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> Hers was a better song. I mean, it's the same argument I think uh, that people have made about the Prince B side. She's always in my hair versus D'Angelo's version. Prince Prince kind of was just pumping them out as you know, like a like a sort of. Uh, I guess uh, assembly line just kept making them and putting them out, making them and putting them out and wasn't really quality controlling them. But then when somebody who actually heard the song in a different time in a different space felt differently about it and put a different energy behind it, then of course, yes, it's going to be stronger or, you know, done seemingly better to the ear. So that's to be considered with Aretha. It's not that she was necessarily better than the original. She was just in a different space. In a different space. So yeah. she does, I mean, the choir does back her up on that, but this was her mostly playing the um, the piano. She goes back to the pulpit. I have to always make note of all the black shit in this, in this film. So I'm sitting here watching <laughs> it, and she's singing at the pulpit, and I look over to her, or well, her left, our right, and it got the Bible with the Sunday school bell. I said, "This really is a church. This ain't no. This not a. This not a game. They got their Sunday Girl, school bell sitting the, on the pulpit." The minute I saw the painting, yes, the painting. I said, "This is the blackest this thing I have seen." They didn't. They didn't. They didn't look. Oh my back God, then we didn't have the black mega churches. So yeah, th- this was real. Now where's my sister? Even, wait, hold up. Even down to the I'm water right stains. The the water uh the water stains up on the ceiling by the Leslie in the corner. Did you yes, yes, yes. I saw those and I'm like, oh my god! Now this my, is real. Now my sister made note of is it, and I thought I'll, I'm not a musician like her, so I just thought it was something cool to note that this whole album was recorded, of course, with the Southern California Community Choir and all that power and all that bravado that they got sitting down. Now, sitting down. these days, you don't sit down in no concert. Uh, Donna Lawrence will have the Tri-City Singers and Ricky Diller to have New G stand there for three hours. Mm-hmm. Three hours. Whole- <laughs> but you have to consider also that um, the space and how uh, tight and small and low ceiling that church was, considering how much reverb you would have if they stood they couldn't the mics would have picked up every sway and move oh yeah and so um that took great discipline to you know pull those notes up from the the diaphragm while sitting down so i think it was just pretty technical that was impressive too i I agree with with, i agree with courtney i was very impressed like they sitting down singing like this Mm -hmm. like killing it sitting down killing it sitting down all that air sitting down Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, because now, and some you mentioned, Carolyn, about you've only seen the movie once, and you know, uh, it's kind of hard to give review. <laughs> Not to be funny, but I've, I've been hearing this movie for almost 30 years. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been hearing it for 30 years. So when I saw the visual co- to connect to the album I've been listening to since I was nine, I was ready for mm-hmm. a lot. Because right. I'm like, I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that because I know this album like the back of my hand. Now let me. We ask cleaned you guys up this. the house to it every Saturday morning. Yeah, mm, exactly. <laughs> you better tell it. 
Uh-huh. Now let me ask you guys this because and and it was really the person sitting next to me that got me confused. Before I get into that, I want to also shout out because I've said that I would. I actually saw the film, and you guys, as you're giving your view, can can feel free to throw out where you saw it. I actually saw it at an, an event thrown by Joy Rome Presents, who it does amazing gospel events here in the Bay Area. I said, if I'm going to go see this film, I'm going to go see it with black church folks. And I am glad that I did, which we are going to get into. So I just want to shout out Joy Rome. Thank you for such an amazing experience where we could clap. I, I, I thought we should have had a tambourine, but it was good being in a, a, it was good being an atmosphere where folks, you know, we have gospel cues when you clap, when you sing, if you know the song, like all those things, it was great to be in a venue where I knew that everybody was going to sing along. Um, but one of the, the person next to me was telling me, she said, well, no, this isn't a rehearsal. This is the actual, they're stopping. Because remember, he said they were going to stop in the middle because it's a recording. So clear this up for me. The recording, was the recording just a concert all the way through? Or was it actually starts and stop because it was more of a recording than a service if that if that question makes sense because that was my confusion was it a service where they just record the service the person next to me said it wasn't a service that it was a recording that they invited the congregation to and to me that's important because there were clips that i guess were rehearsals and i didn't know what was rehearsed and what was real and i got confused it was a recording, recording. not a, not yeah. a service like okay. they like there's one point in the film where you see aretha stop everybody and started start everything all over again yeah. after like the first four and- bars that's yeah, I heard that. He warns yeah. you of that. He tells you this is a recording, but there's also a service. And he said, "We're going to stop if something don't sound right." And we're going to do it again, stop. and I try to clap again. <laughs> Same way. <I> <laughs> clap, clap again. The way that you clap. Okay. So the scene where we saw where she had on, you know, the towel, and the second night, and we're going to get it to see uh, Franklin's appearance. But it was so cute to me when he goes up to the piano and he, you know, wipes, wipes her sweat. Face. I was like, ain't no, but she been singing her ass off for I don't know how many hours, and ain't nobody even wiped the face. They ain't even gave her a glass of orange juice like they get a minister. So thank you, They gave her some water. They gave her some water. I guess. Whatever. But I thought, I personally <laughs> thought it was real cool when, when CL came up and wiped her face. Yeah, that was yeah. so cute. I thought that was so nice. I was like, oh. I almost cried when he was, because the, the way that she just looked at him, you, she loved her daddy. And mm-hmm. he and the way he talked about her, he loved his daughter. But anyway, we're not yeah. going to get to that just yet. We're not going to get to that just yet. So we're in, in night number one. Um, One thing that somebody mentioned to me that I, it, it, I didn't know it would touch me the way that it did. I don't know which song it was, but there was a song when James Cleveland had to stop. He had to sit down in the chair. He had to put his hand in his head, and and uh, the director was he. I think he was playing the piano, and he stopped playing the piano. But there was the one moment where he got the Holy Ghost, and he said the next night he said, uh, that "I stopped. I, I I stopped getting my praise. I'm gonna get my praise tonight." I don't know why that I just think touched it, me. I think it was Precious Memories, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been. I, I remember it was, it was something Precious where memories. he was playing, and he had to stop playing, and somebody else had to come play. And then at one point, Aretha stopped singing it. And then said, or she she was singing a song, and then she sat down. It was just the whole point is that there was so much of the spirit in this film. Like even though it was recording, that was a shown up holy service. Like mm-hmm. even just watching it, you you was touched by the spirit. Just watching them get the spirit, and also the fact that you know white people who honestly probably didn't know what was going on. They left it. They left it in there. The pure rawness of the emotion that was in the room. Brandon. I know that you mm-hmm. have lots of technical notes on night number one. So yeah. let's go. 
so the film, <laughs> I, and so the film in general, like, um, so this film was obviously shot in 1972 on 16 millimeter film. You can see like the uh, the film crew hanging around in the background of like most of the shots. And I feel like they edited the film, like this version we saw in a way to sort of kind of show like they're not trying to be so like clean and everything about hiding the cameraman that like the same way something like perhaps Watt Stacks had done. They're mm-hmm. fine with you seeing the cameraman sort of walk around, especially like the um, the one still photographer guy who, who looks like the dude from Black Shampoo. Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> there's a, there's a light skinned dude with an afro who's a still photographer. And he's always in the pulpit, like I, hanging around, trying to get, trying to get, um, trying to get um, still shots. All the stills. I gotta, get a, <laughs> I gotta get a bootleg of this movie because I need to. <laughs> but um, one thing that I did notice is that whoever did the like cleanup for the movie, I feel like my personal opinion, they might have cleaned up too much. Hmm. Like I saw it. At um, on a fairly decent sized screen at Phipps Plaza here in Atlanta, which is like the Bougie Theater as a Buckhead and everything. So I saw it in a theater where on one side of me I had a bunch of old elderly white people. <laughs> who clearly, these are Aretha fans from back in the 60s and 70s who are like, Aretha, I remember her very well. She was one of my favorite Negresses, you know, that type of thing. On the other side of me, because it's Atlanta, I had church queens. <laughs> Was sitting there, they were like, and every time Rita came out with a new outfit, it was like, like Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of people a lot did lose themselves, Carolyn. I know they was in public and we in Buckhead, but a couple of the people they decided, Yes, amen. Amen. <laughs> Give in to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The mm-hmm. one thing, and this is probably the theater. Like when you saw it, how did the bass response sound? Like the bass and the bass draw, did it hit? Oh, I don't know, like, Brandon. I'm not an editor like, like you. I didn't pay attention. No, no I'm sorry. Did you feel the <laughs> bass when you saw the movie? That's all I'm asking. I felt the spirit of the Lord. I felt something. <laughs> Lord Gregory. <laughs> well, the the, the 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 audio mix was really great um, in the theater I was in, and I I heard and felt every note the way I should have. Okay. It felt it felt audibly correct is what I could basically say. Yeah. Um, it didn't feel weak. I was kind of concerned it would be weak because the theater I was in, there the all up until the movie, the sound was kind of low, and I'm like, I hope this ain't the, the level for the movie. Right, right. And then when the movie kicked in, okay, oh, the volume came up. Okay, good, good. Yeah. So I, I was I was pleasantly happy with that, and yeah. um, the mix was the mix was done very well. I but I I actually had no doubts because one of the things I had heard leading up to the film was that Jimmy Douglas, the famous engineer yep. from Timberland. Slave and and not just Timbaland but Slave, mm-hmm. he was responsible for a lot of Slave's work, um, and that's kind of how he got the Missy and Timbaland work was by referral of that. Um, he was coming back to do the mixing for the film. And I was when I read that, I was like, oh, it means it's gonna be tight. It's gonna be done well. Yeah, I read you know? somewhere where they talked about how great the sound was. And also even about they they described the lighting, which is a weird way to describe <laughs> it, but I don't know that any color move any color movie by a white director had ever lit this much black skin with such care and consistency. I don't know how I feel about that description, but I mean it it was 
it was lit well. They, there were no shadows. From, from back then, I can see that. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's probably more of a credit to uh, to um, Sidney Pollock's director. He's a good director, you know, yeah. for what well, it's worth. He was yeah, worth his salt. There was a couple of times where I saw Sidney Pollack directing them to shoot certain uh, people shouting. I'm like, Sidney Pollack, yeah. you all know nothing about shouting. But okay, you good. <laughs> but but he, he knew enough to get the shot. He knew enough to get the shots. He's yeah. like, yeah, get yeah. get that. Get that. We yeah. want that for later. And yeah. I mean, homegirl with the Afro pups getting into it was everything I needed in my life. Okay, wait. Let's say this for a second because I need some, some explanation on that. So let's save that. Do we have well, any... Go ahead, Brandon. I, I, I did. I did want to say, like, the in my theater, I think the audio was been low because it was like I could hardly hear like the drum set for a lot of the performance. But it was like I feel like the arrangement, like at least for my theaters, it made it. I think they thought documentary. Let's turn down the sound a little bit and everything or whatever. Like, because I could hear Aretha and James Cleveland like clear as day on mm-hmm. the center track, but like the sides were just. I really wanted it, like, I wanted to get this thing in my house so I could actually turn up the music and hear it the way I want to hear it, because it was like, it was low, and I was like, are they trying not to offend these old white people? What's going on here? Well, let me ask you guys this question. As I said before, the person who does the most, the majority of the talking is James Cleveland, um, and Aretha does not do very much. And it, for me, I have never in my 40 years of life, and of course, that's only half of Aretha's life, um, <laughs> so... Now, was that more about her saving her voice and she's already given the direction? Because I didn't even know she was credited as a producer and as one of the arrangers. Was that more about her saving her voice and not trying to do too much? Or was that, do you think that that was more as far as letting James Cleveland and I think James and the, the assistant director were more of the day of musical directors. What did you, I mean, I might have been the only person who noticed this, but it really struck me. I wonder if it was because of her queen status and she had just begun to reign as the queen of soul as he introduced her. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, letting the not not the James Cleveland's a minion, but letting the minions do the heavy lifting. (laughs) I think the only thing she wanted to do was when she opened her mouth, it was for that. Yeah. And then her the very few things she said, like her uh, acknowledgments of her dad, and that was it. But um, I think to the preservation of her voice on a live recording to simply be singing, it's not like she was Luther. Because, you know, Luther Vandross sings and talks yeah. 50% of his, uh, of, his, uh, produ- of his live productions. I don't think that that's what she was doing because I don't think that was the, um, the platform of, uh, of making a recording at that time. Okay. Uh, that's that's a valid thought. I I would think it had more to do with her wanting to uh, be more into the spirit of what was going on, and even though it was a recording, she wanted to make sure it was as authentic as possible. Okay. You know, to her her true gospel traditions, because that authenticity is what she had to sell in terms of making this record go over well. And I think she was more into the spirit of the of the performance, which is mostly her thing. I mean, we talking about 72. Yeah. In 1972, I mean, she gave some of her strongest performances. Now, you got to remember, this is like right after Live at Fillmore West. Yeah. Because yeah. that was 70. That was 71. I think uh, Brandon can back me up on it. I think that was 71. I, um, so. I mean, Live at Fillmore West 
is some of her ama most amazing stuff ever. No pun intended. You know, I mean, and for her to come fresh off of that to do in Miss Live album, it's like, oh, you know, she really had to, you know, really sell it in order to make it worth the time, you know, because of course she had all those different hits. I mean, and Aretha's one of those artists has, that's taken a lot of chances with her career. Some have panned out, some have not. And the ones that have not panned out, we don't, we just don't hear about. Nobody talks about the La Diva album produced by Van McCoy because it tanked. <laughs> You that just don't even sound it. right. Aretha and Van McCoy yeah. just don't sound right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it well it, it didn't sound right. So you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but either way, I mean, Aretha's one of those people that's taken a lot of chances on her stuff, and sometimes she has to sort of. I mean, again, you got to look at 1972 and the value of black people around that time. Our word was not enough. And she had to sell it. She had to make sure that this went off the right way, that she didn't have any problems in terms of her presentation of the material. So she had to probably just focus on being that and let everybody else take care of whatever they needed to take care of, you know, to do. So she was ready on those two days to fully present. And I, I wonder... Um... Again, the duality of our being church people and club people. We would club on Saturday nights and still play the instruments on Sunday mornings. Well, we do that now. Mm -hmm. But at that time, even then, um, from the community choir to the musicians, they were club boys and club girls, you know, family anyway. Yeah. And we that's just how we did. I was right mm -hmm. there in the midst of it. And um, I think not take such a great risk because the black people who went to church also listened to her music. We probably didn't talk about it on Sunday morning. <laughs> oh, but we had it on Saturday nights. Come with me now. And I don't think that, that her making the, the record or even the recording, if the visual had come out at the same time, that we really would have struggled with it because that was really being an authentic black Experience. person of faith and culture, exactly. Remember, it was night one or night two, uh, where they actually had technical difficulties. So that was, was a, a it was, one. It was night two. It was night two. Okay. Where, where they had to stop the whole thing already. But yeah, night one was. You could tell it was a little bit like rough here and there, especially just like the, the filmmaking more than the performances. Like the performances were always fine, but yeah. like you could sort of kind of see like they were kind of scattershot how they were filming it, like you know, and, and all that kind of stuff, like. Mm -hmm. They but lost like, her mic. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know about y'all, church, but we our mics went out in the pulpit all the time. So that was just the white people wasn't used to that. We was used to it. Whatever. Keep singing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get before I get into night two, I want to also call out the the folks who were on um, the personnel on the performance. So there was, of course, was Aretha. I'm Reverend James Cleveland, who is credited as the choir director. And, you know, to me, the choir director is also one of the main producers, but he's not credited as a producer. Okay. Alexander Hamilton, right? Alexander yeah. Hamilton was the assistant Alexander director who did. Hamilton. He was such a he was such a director. I loved him. He was. He was. <laughs> he was. Um, <laughs> you know who need a who need a documentary is Ricky Diller. Ricky Diller need a documentary. He need to do like an anatomy of the choir director. 
I'm gonna put that on his Twitter. That's real. <laughs> so, uh, Cornell Dupree, CL Franklin, who of course had the um, one of the um, parts in Night Two. Bernard Purdy, all of these are LA legends. Uh, Kenneth yes. Ken Lipper, Pancho Morales, Chuck Rainey. Some of these were these some of the studio musicians. I didn't see no composition. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this, is her, this is her regular band because they also appeared in the Fillmore West album. Okay. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Douglas, who you also talked about, was the engineer. Um, mm-hmm. and then these are the recording engineers: Arif Martin, um, and Jerry Wexler, of course, who is the main producer. Now we have to. I did not like, and Greg, I know we're gonna have a time talking about this. I was scared when they went into night two and they started playing Mary over the entrances because I started being scared that they wasn't gonna play Mary Don't You Weep at all. And I was gonna almost walk out. I agree. I was like, I was like, this is if there was ever, and I don't know if they released singles from this album. But if you're going to consider anything a single or the most important song on the album, it's Mary Don't You Eat. I need some exclamations. Of, I mean, they did finally get to her singing, but it wasn't until the vamp, I think. Was it or the yeah. second verse? Yeah. I was I was bothered by that as well, because to me, uh, Mary Don't You Weep was the first song of the original release. Right. It was a very important, you know, I mean, the first the first cut is the deepest. Right, you know, so I, I I couldn't understand why they did that, why that was an editing choice. Um, technically, though, for technical purposes, and Brandon to back me up, the only actual single that was released was "Holy Holy." Okay, um, that was actually put on forty five and everything. Um, but and, and I, don't, I don't think Mary was a single. What's um, the B side of "Holy Holy"? Was it? The B side. That's a good question. I'm going to look that up because um, I'm not 100% aware. But um, I do know Holy Holy was uh, definitely uh, a single of it. I mean, when it first happened, I thought, I mean, because it did sound wise to me, it, it did sound good hearing it as the people were coming in. I thought that they were going to maybe just edit and make it longer, like make mm-hmm. pay it as a bed of music and then play the actual performance. But when they just rolled right into her performance, I said, what in the goo guy's hell? Um, but, yeah. but I also, because one important point that you made, Greg, to me, the, the climax of the whole spiritual experience in Mary, the Lazarus, you said, I thought I, I thought I was tripping when it didn't happen, but you said that was an overdub. Yes. Um, real quick to Re- Reverend Ray Dora's question. Give yourself to Jesus was the B side. Okay. Of Holy Holy. Um, so yeah, back at that time too. Say it again. Church choirs at that time too. Okay. So, um, yeah, as far as the Lazarus thing, um, this is one of the things that kind of was a small heartbreak to me (laughs) because of course, I mean, I've been living with this album since nine years old and I knew that, you know, um, when she says Lazarus each time there's a, a, uh, uh, a vocal in the back, Lazarus. Right. And then even when uh, she says he got up, there's a, uh, uh, yes, all, I, uh, I was ready to go. All of that. So, <laughs> so when I, when I heard the reissue from 99, that was the original unedited tapes and these parts were missing. I was like, Oh, so these were overdubs. And that's actually part of, um, 
something that I mean, and, and Brandon's probably gonna say I'm wrong on this, but I was a little selfish. I wanted some of the um overdub studio footage to been recorded for this ah, documentary. Yeah. I wanted I would have liked to see them go into the studio and do some of the overdubs to fix what they fixed because they actually after they recorded the album those two nights they went and took it in the studio and did minimal overdubs here and there to fix different things certain vocals were re-recorded um i found out that um uh well, which one is it? old landmark was completely re-recorded in terms of what? the vocal for uh, old landmark was completely re-recorded oh wow because you could tell it's completely different and I mean, her shout in there, everything that's on the original 72 release is not on these tapes. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's part of the overdub process. And I think this is uh, one of the greater things that happened with live albums back in 72. And as time went on, something that and, and I'm probably gonna get major disagreement from you on this carolyn that i that i don't like about live records now the john p key way is to record a a halfway good album in the church and then doctor it up the studio and put lipstick all on the pig and it don't don't look right you don't get no no fights with me because there are songs ricky diller got on the what's courtney which album got the light on it that's live in a the light the light is um is that, is that I would call it not grateful. Um, I forgot and I see the album, but there's a whole um, what song? Holy Holy Spirit on that album. There's no lead. There's no lead. Yes. When you watch the video on YouTube, there's no lead. They overdubbed the lead in. Every the first time I heard, it, I was like, "What is happening?" And then a lot of times, it's so funny now when you listen back to a lot of them. One of the things that they said about Amazing Grace is that they talked about how you could hear it, what what the white people call exhortations, but we know that isn't anything. Sang Rita, all of that. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of times now they mix that down in gospel mm-hmm. albums. So yeah, yeah, because <laughs> because people look at it as they moment to come up, so they don't want to get too many people shine other than the artist. But some That's of them is probably... so good, like like uh, uh another Ricky Dillon. You can, can you tell I love Ricky Dillon? Another one. It took me ten years to figure out when, when he was saying rah, 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 rah. it was saying Charmetta. Oh, okay. Took me ten years. I didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> and but it's the same thing because uh in in mary you hear that you know we hear the 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 exhortations and then pushing her you hear it on the the recording so it was i was kind of sad that they didn't do more panning when she was performing it because kind of like what you said that's like the that's the spiritual high of the film i mean there's a lot of other spiritual highs but that film, because just even on the record, it comes across so emotionally, I would have liked to have seen the, you know, the audience actually engaging in that song. Did they, but did, did Pollock or even the cameraman know that that was moment, that that was authenticity, that that was an essentiality of the Black church experience and our call and response and our participation you know the way we participate in the in the worship mm-hmm. and the whole the whole her whole performance called for our participation and we were used to it but did they not did they, they they saw it but they didn't know what they were seeing so they they knew the visual they knew the visual they knew when people shout and they knew when people waved their hands but they didn't know the importance of the call and response you right about that rev 
you probably can't even cue when the call and response is <laughs> gonna happen. You know, that wasn't scripted. That was, you know, when they come back from the back, if they didn't have um multiple cameras and suspended cameras just panning the audience and focus on certain people, yeah, they would have missed those moments. But look what they did get. They did get um the rocker. Um What's the white rocker's name? Oh, that, Mick, that, oh Mick that, was, that was important because they didn't just get Mick Jagger. They somebody saw him. You saw it in the film. Somebody saw him. They pointed at him. The camera stayed on him. And the until they can get it until they can get it in focus. <laughs> to, and then they brought him up front. Yep. The funny thing was, I looked. I was like, that looked like Mick Jagger, but it couldn't possibly be good. Why are we doing that? Read the regular. And, and sure enough, it's actually Mick. Well, like I was telling somebody, it, it kind of it makes, they were like, I can't believe Mick Jagger was there because there were a lot of gospel celebrities and that was actually what I was going to go into next. Um, but he was, as far as rockers, he was the only one that was there. But if you look at, you know, the way that he structures the Rolling Stones, if you look at, what's the song that has uh, Mary, what's her face from 20 Feet from Stardom? Uh, which song is that? Uh, Mary Clayton, you talking about... Um... Murder, yeah, that song. Yeah, rape and murder is just a shot away. It's just a shot. He always uh, give, makes sure. Give me shelter, right? Yeah, give me shelter. yeah. He always yeah. makes sure to have a Baptist bass shouter in the background of the Rolling Stones. Because after after 20 Feet from Stardom, Lisa Fisher did it for a while. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can see the influence that Aretha had on him and that. But some of the other luminaries, I told uh, my, my co-worker, he's only 26. I said, child... <laughs> Clara Ward showed up. I said, these black people didn't even know who Clara was. He's like, I don't know who Clara was. I said, of course you don't. Exactly. <laughs> what? I, I don't think I've ever seen Clara Ward. That's another, to me, that's another reason why the movie is, I've never seen Clara Ward. I've never thought to look up her picture. So yep. that yep. was a big deal to me. My, my, uh, it, it was interesting, kind of related was, uh, Record Store Day was last week, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, as I was digging, I saw one of her LPs oh. and, and on Verve. She had an album on Verve from 1966 that was secular. Oh, and I'm wow. like, I was like, wait a minute. Clara Ward has secular albums? Well, see, like, here's, oh. I, there's some things that are confusing to me about Clara Ward and Rev. Maybe you know, because I know that there are songs like um, Didn't It Rain, which is public domain. It, so I don't know how much of her catalog is public domain now. How much of it is, you know, I I don't think anybody knew she had an album on Verve because Verve is jazz, right? So, um, do you yeah. know, like, did did she actually own her music and how did it get to be? Does anybody know how it got to be public domain? I know at least that song is public domain. See, she wasn't ever really a songwriter, and the the girl groups the bucket, <laughs> but um, and so what when we're hearing them, you're hearing pieces that were handed down from probably from the north um some of it took into the rock and roll and the uh jazz sound that really wasn't southern and that's what she did a lot of and okay. so and like Aretha's influence was that way too they were not known to be songwriters and the other two gentlemen you could help me out um if there is a songwriter in that genre, I don't know who it was because that wasn't as big of a feed. But I know if you listen to old country and Western singers, you will hear a lot of the remakes came out of that. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I, I it seems it sounds like correct, I guess. But um, 
back then at that time, there weren't too many songwriters who were singers. Everything was separated. That's right. People wrote the songs and then other folks sang them. And I think um, <laughs> Prince is more default for that than anything because he he merged it all to where everybody had to be sort of a wonderkin to even, you know, go further past the 80s. You know, I mean, Patrice Russian is another notable in that level, yeah. in that yeah. regard, because she was a songwriter and started singing on her own eventually because her first couple releases had singers on them. But then she started doing it herself. That's for so, the Simpson also. They wrote I, a lot for others, but then they, they, were, they made yeah. their money. Right. Yeah. They were they were more songwriters <laughs> first. And right. then they eventually gra gravitated towards being artists themselves with their own contract on Warner Brothers back in the 80s. Uh, well, actually, late 70s, late 70s I and going into that. I love Ashford and Simpson, but I, aside from Solid, I was never a fan of their own stuff. Wait, hold, well, hold up. Hold up, though. Hold up, though. <laughs> you, you, I mean, all due respect, you got to do your homework because Ashford and Simpson's version of, um, oh, my goodness, it seems to hang on. Okay, with, uh, uh, oh my oh, goodness! Listen, with 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 Nick Ashford, loose me. Yeah, yeah, loose me, girl. I can never hear Nick Ashford sing and not see his um his process. Girl, okay, okay. I'm gonna have Ashford and Simpson date, and it's only stuff that's they albums. Nobody else stuff. Only you gotta go. You you gotta go back to the early albums like uh on Warner Brothers from the 70s, stuff like Stay Free. It what, seems what, to hang what, on. What about Valerie's? I never heard any of it, but what about Valerie's Motown stuff? That I've been meaning to do my homework on that too, because I hear it's really good. I, but you talking about Ashford and Simpson, honey? Ooh, look. Well, let's go back to night two. So night two, as he said, this was considered more of the 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 fancy. Night where all the the folk, the luminaries and fancy um, folks showed up. We had Mick Jagger, we had Claire Ward. The most important cameo of that night was Reverend C. L. Franklin, Aretha's father. And it to me, it was funny to watch him because he did not crack a smile the whole time. He said he said he was such a preacher. He sat there with his legs crossed mm -hmm. until they called him up into the pulpit, and then he got up and made his remarks. Making up no. words. We all cracked up. <laughs> I don't remember what that word was that he made up. He said that Aretha has such and such. And we were like, what the? That he a Baptist preacher with that pot, with that uh, big red pomade slick back that he had going yeah. on. But he cracked me up with his clearing of his throat that he kind of threw into his sermon. <clears throat> yes. Mm. I'm yes. like, okay. <laughs> any, any black man who stood a process in 1972, you can't trust them. Yeah. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Greg, I know that was going to pass the book. As soon as I saw him, I was like, this Negro still got a process. He still had a process. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. In total fairness, I mean, um, by the time I joined New Bethel, that's when CL had been shot. Yeah, he was and in a coma. He was in a coma for uh, some time, and Reverend Robinson Jr. took over. I think, was it nine years or so? Five years. Five, five years. years. Five mm -hmm. years. Yeah, he was in a coma for a while, so um, I never really got to experience him as seeing his original sermons go forth because it was way past my time. But um, 
I was used to from the other Baptist ministers I've seen in my lifetime. When I saw CL on the stage in this film, I was like, okay, yeah, now I see he is the originator of where all these other Baptist ministers got their oh, style yeah. from. Oh yeah. He's the oh, I was yeah. I was gonna ask about that because yeah, he looked like, the, like a member of the temptations. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> like the, the Baptist the Baptist preacher cadence, the the diction. The diction that they use when yes. they are at and yeah. thinking about how yeah. they speak mm -hmm. in this certain sort. Yes. Of yes. a way, Lord. Yes. 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 That 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 exacting, that exacting strong way of enunciating the words very slowly, deliberately. Taking the breaks. Know, taking breaks. Aretha you know. is a fat, flat. But Sanger, a soul Sanger. Okay. Aretha's just a stone, a stone Sanger. Sanger. That's what it was, a stone Sanger. And and, and honestly, the part that got me was the. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he cleared his throat but real you know, quick. Mm. <laughs> I was like, wasn't that just wasn't the Black Baptist affect because uh, Daddy Franklin looked like Daddy Grace. Mm -hmm. It looked like uh, Reverend Ike. They mm. all had that pompadour and that high. Um, uh, tailored, um, you know, three piece, and you know that effect. The only thing is, uh, Daddy Franklin did not have uh, the uh, queerness or the homosexual uh, attachment to them as the other two did, and they were Pentecostal and quote unquote non denominational Pentecostal. Ooh. It's just black male preaching and that uh, so affect, which, it, like you said, did look like the Temptations. Mm hmm. Music and our musicality crossed over, huh? Look, I, I thought it was just Detroit, Rick. Oh, no, oh, no, <laughs> no. Uh -uh. oh no, I wish I wish we could claim it like that. I mean, it was it was deeper than Detroit. I mean, it yeah. might have, it oh, might yeah. have started with us, but like I say, you got to remember, um, CL had been preaching back, I think, uh, the 60s, and I want to say late 50s and then the mm -hmm. 60s, and he toured a lot. And so uh, CL was basically almost the Ray Charles of preaching right. because he got he, he got so popular that his style became highly imitable and everybody wanted to do it because that was what was bringing in the, the worshipers. That was was bringing in, to be honest, the dollars. Was, was his bringing style. in the women who held the dollars, who brought the dollars, <laughs> but the brothers were not oh, in no. the church. Come oh, on, no. hey, man, she ain't lying. <laughs> I, ain't lying. She on point with that. I cannot help but think about all them stories y'all told about Reverend C.L. When I was watching the doc, watching the documentary, I was just like, I can see it. Yeah, <laughs> and it was, yeah. and it's so funny that, it, and we once again we're not gonna discuss it. I saw so many of the stories that we told in that film, just like Greg said, and both of you said. Even just watching Reverend Cleveland, I'm like, hmm. I kept thinking mm. that joke that we, at Courtney. I don't know where we got that joke from. I don't know if we got it from Aretha's book, but we always go, oh, Richard, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Philip Golden in Pittsburgh, California. Oh, I don't know where we got that from. But um, so on night two, there was a, a comment that I was about to make about night two. So this was the night, the night that Aretha, what was Aretha singing when she got the spirit and sat down and then jumped up and did a reprise and started directing the choir? Do y'all remember what, what, what song that was? Because the spirit got real high night two. Nobody remembers what song that was. Good question. Um, that, that's, the song, that's the song that she played the piano on? What? It wasn't the old landmark, was it? I don't 
So when he gave her, she had sat down and he gave her the mic again. Yeah, he gave her the mic with that mic and jumping up and directing the choir. I was like, I'm thinking as white editors, were they going to leave it in there? Because they don't know them. The re- To me, the reprise is always the best part of the song. Yeah. The reprise yeah. is always the best. Yeah, and I, she was probably sitting in the uh, cutting room floor at some of those iterations, and may have had to uh, teach them, you know, as they were cutting, what what was inter- to, to what was to be interpreted as, you know, an authentic experience. Mm-hmm. Cutting that part out. Here is a part of at least my authentic experience growing up in Pilgrim Rest Missionary Baptist Church, and I'm still confused. Remember, she was sitting uh, midway middle aisle. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And even now, every time I see the trailer, I had never noticed this before, but now when I see the trailer, that part is in there. And I'm like, what was happening? And I, I, I think I was like, are they fighting? Are they fighting? No, you no, know, that there. performance, that <laughs> performance of the Holy Ghost is not atypical where there is, you know, one woman just always overcome and she got to get up. She got to touch the preacher. She got to touch the singer. She got to, because she just so overcome. She just got to mm-hmm. fall at their feet. I, yeah. saw so, video, I, just, I saw a video the other day where the man jumped over the, over the, the lady. <laughs> into the, I said, attack with the lady. But go ahead. And she was singing. Yes. <laughs> I've seen women, <laughs> uh, preachers preaching, and women who ain't even their wives come up and just like jump on their back and you know get drug around until the deacons and and trustees come and pull, you know, pull her off of him and stuff like that. And it was real prevalent in the full gospel movement. Oh my gosh! Really? I'm like, it's not that much Baptist the Holy Ghost ever, <laughs> but okay. They feel that spirit. Feel that spirit. That's, mm-hmm. that's another whole show. That's another whole show. Another whole show. Um, C.L. Franklin and the doting between him and Aretha. And I, but I'm one thing I'm gonna say about that. Even though you could tell the love between Aretha and the love he had for his daughter, it always. I go back again to that episode we did on on SN after Aretha's death, and we talk about some of the that made my flesh crawl when he got up and mopped her brow and again something was inauthentic about it that he feigned this protectiveness when in fact he had just boasted that uh he she's been on the road with him since she was 12 but she had that first baby three weeks before she turned 13 oh, and so you go all of this level of protectiveness and um you know not drop kicking the, them other two husbands that were abusive to her uh, you know, because she was making the money and, you know, getting the name out there. So that uh, mopping the brow to me, again, was um, performance of his redemption as opposed to some great paternal piece. But again, that's my wow. coloring. Well, no, uh, you're not wrong about that, because that's why when I first mentioned him, I talked about how he sat there, you know, he sat there looking like damn near Ike Turner. Until yeah. until Reverend Cleveland called him up. Now it was cute still the way she was still really doting on her daddy. Like she just sat there gazing at him, like I just love my daddy. But at the same time, he was looking like yeah, going up, uh, going up there and singing them song, girl. It was huh? really confusing. Uh-huh. I you know I didn't really think about that until you guys mentioned it, and I I highly value your perspective on that. Because I bribing and yeah, I see it now. That that he kind of was Ike Turner in that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and wow. then he, he said he wasn't even supposed to be there. Didn't he say he he wasn't gonna be there and somebody told him how good night num, night one was? I was uh, uh-huh. told and so him. he 
And so he had to go find him uh, a few suits. And so he he decentered her, recentered himself, had to go find me a few suits and some socks to show up. Yes, he did say that. Yeah, he did. <laughs> he did. He, it, it, it's so, it's so, oh. The interesting thing it, to me hard. that I, and it kind of related, I guess, but interesting thing to most that I noticed was um, on the original release in 72, his remarks were only about a minute and 56 seconds. Oh, okay. But they actually released the whole monologue on the reissue in 99, which is, I don't know if, if everybody here has heard both versions, but I implore everybody to listen to both because there's interesting comparisons you're going to hear between both in terms of how what what they started with you're going to hear from the 99 uh pressing and then what they ended up with you're going to hear from the 72 original you know issue um and both are out there on streaming if you're interested um i think streaming and uh physical copies are floating around of course still um I thought it was very interesting that there was like almost a seven minute speech yeah. Um, on the, the 99 press. And I was like, wow. He get up like, like I wasn't going to say nothing, but here go this seven yeah. minute speech. Right. <laughs> Not on the program. However. Yeah, that, that false humility was part of, part of the stick, part the false humility. I, I wasn't going to. I wasn't gonna say this, but I wasn't gonna do this, but I'm mm-hmm. not gonna keep it here too long. But that's but, but you know what? That's that that's that's the Baptist way. That's the Baptist way I'm used to is uh preaching gift. I, I won't be in front of you long. I ain't gonna be in front of you too long. Twenty minutes later. My no, no, I'm not twenty minutes later, close. two hours later. I'm getting ready to close. You talking about the actual past. I thought you about like somebody who just got up on in the pulpit, somebody who's visiting. Oh, that too. Look, yeah. they be doing that. That too. too. Sometimes a half an hour later, they still up here and they still talking. Yeah, that, that happens a lot in Baptist church because you know. Now my and, my next favorite authentic black church moment comes towards the end of the film. You sitting there minding your own self business. You coming down from the Holy Ghost, and then somebody and I missed it. Might have been James Cleveland because I had my head down again. Somebody threw their prayer cloth. They put through their sweat <laughs> <laughs> and it mm-hmm. landed on the camera. Yeah, that's, that's, that's who threw that. I, I saw it come from the choir. That was everybody, everybody, that cracked up everybody. Yeah, like, yeah, that was. There was just them certain them certain things that we all knew that was just like this is black church stuff. I forgot which song it was where you know we all knew the star. Oh no, it was at the end. I forgot which song did they close with. Um, there was no song during the credit, but before the over. credits, it was it how I got over. And everybody just knew to start, not to just start clapping, but how to clap. You know, uh-huh. it was just all those, all, all those very important sacred moments within the film that we knew that maybe other people don't know, but was another good example of the type of culture capsule that the film is. Um, so I would like to get started. We'll start with my sister because she got a crime baby over there. What were your <laughs> last thoughts or your your closing thoughts on this must see film? Besides the fact we're gonna watch it every year when it come on DVD. I wanted to see I wanna see it again. I wanted to see it over and over again. I loved as a musician and as a singer, I loved it. Um it shows how far we've come musically. Um it yeah. um as, as a minister, it shows how far we've come ministry wise. Um I'm actually working on 
here's the plug. I'm working on a live album from, for our aunt. So it gave me tons of ideas of how a live church service slash recording should go. Um, since I was a child when Bishop um, Cleveland died, it um, it showed me his role. It showed me him. I never got a chance to see him. Um, so it, it was it was very a very instrumental um, movie to Black culture and Black um, church. Um, I think I think every Black musician should see it to know whence we came from. When I saw how hard the drummers was trying to play, I was like, these are basic drum beats that we play every Sunday, sir. But that was 30 years ago when they this was a hard song to play. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I really cannot wait to see it over and over again. I need to have it on Blu-ray. I need to have it on, um, downloaded on Amazon or something. I need, it, it's it's amazing movie. Um, it showed me, it showed me a gentle side of Aretha that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it showed me, um, it showed me the church girl, not the queen yeah. of soul. It showed me mm -hmm. the church girl yep. of how you handle yourself in church, how you handle yourself um, during ministry moments. It um, showed me that side of Aretha and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I would see it for years to come. That's Brandon, Brandon, what were your closing thoughts on the film? I really, I um, I enjoyed performance parts of it. I I want to see it again in better audio settings. I think <laughs> I, when, when it comes on like Blu-ray, get it and turn up my um my own speakers up to where I want it to be. I, I need I kind of one of the best things about being you know in a church service is uh, when in musical church services when you know. Is feeling the music mm -hmm. like when it hits you. Uh, I really enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed seeing like all like the nineteen seventies fashion. You can definitely tell it's nineteen seventy two on the dot. Everyone <laughs> has an afro except for the Reverend um, <laughs> and, and Clara Ward in that in that fur that she came that down the aisle in. And Rita had her <laughs> fur too. Oh Arita yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. That. She had and, her fur. She showed up here. And Clara's wig. Child. Yes, yeah. that was so seventies. Yeah. Uh. You hear me do what pop pop. <laughs> and, and, and then the, the, the lady, the lady who came in with that with that um Alexandra cat from Josie and the Pussycats hair dude with the walk strike in the middle. It came uh -huh. down and then she did she was the one who came. Uh, I was like, she she gonna shout ain't she? Shut up. <laughs> Look, they got professional Everybody professional shouters. Everybody's had their time to shine, baby. Here we go. Uh -huh. Professional. Rev, what was your oh I'm sorry, Brandon, was that the end of your thought? I'm sorry. Yeah, that, that was that was it, yeah. Rev, what was your closing thought on the film? Um, well, um, I was tuned out. I mean, I was, had lost connection when you asked the question about where we saw it. Well, I saw it at an independent theater here in Washington, D.C. There were six black people and 12 white people in the audience. I would love to see it in an audience of my people because I was the only one on the back row going in, going <laughs> in, going in. And I just imagine if I was with those who understood it, if we wouldn't have turned it into a sing-along because yeah. of the reality, or we would have um, not participated in the call and response because there is something so viscerally uh, uh, joyful about knowing, seeing the peace after having been raised with the peace, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I, not only do I want to see it again, <clears throat> I'll get to see it again. It's at one of the venues here that I manage. And, um, so I'll get to, you know, I'll get to see it again and I would see it again, even, even, even if I had to pay for it um, because of the spiritual experience as watching her artistry and the brilliance of her artistry. And again, 
uh, just showing how for us, the sacred and the secular was often held in the same vessel, though intention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Greg, Mm -hmm. what was your, what is your last remarks or thoughts on the film? Okay. Well, I got quite a few. Um, I I do want to throw in there that I happened to see it at the Downer Theater here in Milwaukee um, because it wasn't being played at any of the major theaters, the Marcus or the AMCs that I'm used to. Um, I had to go to sort of our art house theater to see it. Um, I, again, I was impressed with the overall filming of it. Um, the way it was, the shots were composed. Um, as I watched, um, I saw a color correction credit at the end, and I thought about Brandon when I saw that because I thought about I, me too when I saw it. I saw, I said, oh, and, and and I noticed how the colors were a lot sharper and more vivid, and I said, so that's what color correction is. And I said, oh, okay. So I was, I was noticing that because I'm like, this stuff looks really bright. And like, and it's really shot very well. Like what, you know? So I, I noticed that. Um, I was very upset at the editing of Mary. I still can't get over it. Um, because that's the one song that was the statement piece of the whole album. Yeah. And I, to, for them to edit that really upset me. I did notice editing of another song because again, I've been living with the record since I was nine. And, um, but overall I'm hoping I'm still hoping uh, beyond um, Brandon's very common sense thought. (laughs) I'm hoping that they will expand that when they come to uh, actual release of it on personal video, DVD, something like that as bonuses. Um, My only final parting thought is I really hope that this success of it or whatever success this sees puts a bit of a fire under her estate to also take advantage of it and put out one Lord, one faith, one baptism on DVD. Oh, that would be nice if they did that because awesome. I don't know if that was even, I believe it was recorded, you know, it was the um, 80s. I would believe that, you know, they would have, yeah, it. Some footage. Uh-huh. I believe there is video footage of it, but this will be a good time to put that out. Because, you know, uh, as what I mentioned earlier, looking back on it and doing my research and seeing that they put the CD for Amazing Grace out in 87, right on the heels of One Lord, One Faith, One Baptism getting wings, it would be, you know, a smart move for them to issue that around this time as well. Um, So I hope that happens. Um, But um my only uh, final takeaway from it that I was kind of, you know, disappointed in, I really wanted to see some of the overdub footage of them, you know, going back over some of the recordings and, you know, doing that whole process. That would have made it full on documentary to me. And this point, it was more like sort of a mini church service, the way it mm-hmm. came off. Yeah. And um, much to what Reverend Redor was mentioning um, in comparison, I was amongst a whole bunch of white folks. And there was like maybe one other black person off. There were black persons, uh, black people peppered throughout the audience that I noticed when the lights came up. But there was one other lady off to my right who got the complete and total spirit. (laughs) 
when, when a couple of them scenes came up and we did the soul clap, mm -hmm. I didn't, I had no shame. I didn't care. I went in. Right. Because I'm like this. This is this is all the black I know. I'm this gonna let it. it. Uh -huh. I'm letting uh -huh. it happen. I'm exactly. This is us like a TV show. I'm letting it roll. So I was in it and I felt it and I yelled yes a couple times. <laughs> so I and I was okay with myself. I was daring somebody to touch me. Like oh, oh this is a movie. Uh, you what? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I'm this, daring. this is our movie. Right. Mm -hmm. I was daring him to touch me. And nobody did. So, you know, that was cool. <laughs> um, but um, but all in all, I was very impressed with the film. I'm glad it finally came out. Um, I, I'm hoping for more with the impending Blu-ray DVD release. Um, I want to see it again, but I do not want to go all the way to the north side of Milwaukee to see it. <laughs> so there's that. Um, but I'm I'm much like Brandon, I'm gonna hold off until probably until this Blu-ray DVD comes out and get a chance to see it in my own home on my own terms. Well, my last thoughts on the film is that it's on so many levels. Like I've said over and over again on this show, it's such an important you know, there are a lot of important cultural films. Watch Stacks is an important cultural film, especially when we talk about documentaries and musical films. For some people, not for me. But for some people, Woodstock is an important cultural film. There are just certain films that kept important cultural moments. And I think that this is definitely one for, you know, black culture. Like, it is a very important uh, moment that was caught because it is the, the foundation of so much that we do culturally whether it's music whether it's you know catching the styles whether it is the fact that it was that it was hollywood coming into our venue instead of us having to go to hollywood to get it produced um mm -hmm. and then just for me as a child even though it was 72 it's still very authentic to my raising you know in louisiana in the 80s so i came out very emotional you got to also remember that at our church in Louisiana, we sung so much James Cleveland that I really did think that my godfather was James Cleveland. So that, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I literally, I literally thought that my godfather was James Cleveland. So, you know, that had an effect <laughs> on me because we don't, we don't do church like that anymore. So to really be in that space, it, you know, the styles reminded me, my great grandmother reminded me of my aunts, reminded me of the church ladies that I grew up with. That was our church, so to speak. So mm -hmm. for those of us who've been in the church for a long time, it really, especially the folks of us that was in the theater, like I said, I saw it with a whole, you know, a theater full of a hundred black church people. For a lot of us, it took us back to the churches that we grew up in. And I think that that's important because a lot of our kids don't know anything about church being a part of our culture. They only mm -hmm. know it as something that they may or may not be forced into. So, and then again, like my sister said, I've seen Aretha Franklin a million times on YouTube. I have never, number one, seen Clara Ward. And yep. I have never seen right, right. I have never seen James Cleveland. I said this before the movie. I said, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing Aretha, but I'm more looking forward to see James Cleveland do James Cleveland. I've never seen him really play the piano like that. Not like I mean, mm. I've seen it on YouTube, but not just in its rawness. This was like actually being in a James Cleveland show, which I would have never been able to experience. So to me, that was actually the most important thing that happened in this whole film for me was not just seeing him play, not just hearing him sing, but actually watching him run a service. 
Absolutely. I, I'm never going to have no other opportunity to see James Cleveland run a service. So that's actually how he ran his church service too. Because he would go from the pulpit to the uh, piano, pulpit to the organ. And some days the singing spirit would be so high, he would say, Well, I'm just going to get a benediction. And he did. <laughs> and that's how you're right. That's how he ran this this service. It was, I know it was a recording, but it was a service. And I was glad to be able to take part of it and feel the spirit of it. I, I want to thank all of you for coming and being a part of this. Let's go down the line and get some. Um, places where where can people find you, Courtney, in the interwebs? You can find me in interwebs, um, Instagram, Music Diva C. Um, everything else should be Courtney Weisinger or Music Diva C. Um, YouTube, um, Courtney Weisinger. Um, I believe that Triple Entertainment is also now on Facebook as well. We'll be looking for our next ventures and our projects. We'll be having a Aretha Like Service recording coming up in August. Um, yeah, check me out. Got my music on there now. All right, Rev Ray Dora, where can the people people you need to find Rev Ray Dora? I'm gonna have her back on the show on the six degrees of C dub, but you need to find her before that. So Rev Ray Dora, <laughs> where can they find you? Um I'm at um Twitter at, at Rev Sis Raydora. I am also on Facebook under Reverend Raydora Stewart. And uh, I'm at iwritesolutions.com, and you can see more about uh, the work that I do in the, the seminary and in the church. Awesome. And Greg, where can the people find you? Um, I'm on Mixcloud once a month, uh, mixcloud.com slash treblefree, that's T-R-E-B-L-E-F-R-E-E. -E -E. Um, I'm also on Instagram. But I kind of limit those ads according to people I know. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, may, mainly Mixcloud, where I do a mix once a month. That's my main pref presence. And Brandon, where can the people find you on the interwebs? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at @betouch. You can find the Say Something Nice Say Something Nice podcast. I will put something with two S's in it as the name of the things. If I did stumble every time i say it the say something nice podcast if you're not listening to it already um as on, you I, on as you should be on apple podcast that your a cast tune in wherever else great podcasts can be found what kind of particular shit is that no i'm just playing um, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds familiar that's that's that sounds like me does that sound like somebody yeah when you we have two Go ahead. I was going to say, we have two upcoming episodes that I'm editing now. One is about upcoming Disney Plus with our special guest, um, Richard Lawler from Engadget, who is a friend of the show. Mm. And the other is a review. We're talking about Jesus today. The other is the review of part two of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So, uh. you know, I, you know, I can't be on there because mm -mm. Black Jesus say no. <laughs> all right so you can find me across all social media platforms i am on instagram at cw the host as well as on twitter as cw the host and i am on facebook as carolyn r weisinger you can find the cw show across all social media platforms including instagram twitter and facebook as the cw show you can visit us online at the say something nice podcast on ssnpodcast.com or at thecdubshow.com. 
And you can email us and let us know what you did or did not like about this episode at thecdubshow at gmail.com. And please, for the love of God, support the network by clicking the donate tab on the say something nice dot com page. And let's see, there was one other thing. Oh, by this time, by the time that you have heard this episode, you there will have been an episode of Wyatt next Problem Areas on HBO, and I will be featured on episode four. Yay! So by the time you hear this, yay! You should be able to subscribe to HBO for at least a week so you can go watch the show. Or get somebody's login. That's what I do. So, <laughs> all right. So be black that, about it. Be black about it. I am. I'm, I'm telling the truth. I had to tell. I can't get nobody else's login. I use somebody else's login. So, all right, folks. So that is it for today's episode. And we will see all of you all in the interwebs later. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Just as soon as I see Jesus. I was done with you. Bye, Greg. <laughs> the New Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. The C-Dub Show.